On today's podcast, I talk with Holly Drake. As OSU's chief privacy officer, she has done what it takes. She's got a master's in social work and is fluent in Russian. You won't want to miss a word of our discussion. Okay, so on today's podcast, we welcome Holly Drake, the Chief Privacy Officer at uh, The Ohio State University. Welcome, Holly. And hi, Noah. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. So we'll get started with, um, you know, what you, uh, what you wanted to be growing up. Did you ever see yourself becoming uh, the Chief Privacy Officer at Ohio State? What, what uh, were your first career aspirations uh, as a little kid? Wow, career aspirations as a little kid. I don't, I'd be curious if, as you go through this journey, if anybody said when they were little, they thought they would be a privacy officer growing up because it's such a different type of profession. Um, when I was little, of course, I wanted to be a teacher and I really wanted to um, work in higher ed and actually teach. I liked teaching um, literature in Russian. And so that is what I wanted to do, even from a, a little kid. From being wow. small. So how did you... Um... Very good. So, so you were interested in Russian even uh, even when you were little? No, I was more interested in, in reading and literature when I was little. And it wasn't until I was in high school that I started getting more interested in, in Russia and the Russian culture. The wall came down. Um, there's a lot of information in the news. And so that, that was one of my sparks to oh. wanting to learn more about that culture. Interesting. Okay, so we'll get uh, into that later on in the podcast. But so we'll start. So when you were in high school, um, your first job, you were you worked at the mall. So uh, talk a little bit about that, you know, getting getting your first job there and, and uh, some of some, you know, your first experience in, in the in the working world. Sure. So I'm um, I'm a Gen Xer. And if you're a child of of that time, most um, teenagers spend a lot of time at the mall. It's sort of funny to write that now because they're not. Um, a growing, a growing part of our culture, but the mall is sort of where it was at. And um, I had a job um, in a in a small gift shop in a mall near my hometown. It was called Daisy Valley Gifts, and um, my mom was like the co-owner of it. And um, she was always very creative and entrepreneurial, and um, loved talking with people and working. You know, just the the work that you have when you work in a mall, and. Um, when she was hiring, I decided to apply for the job. And so I worked there for, for actually many, many years and um, loved the vibe of the mall. So the mall has a lot of energy where you have people coming and going. You have people that come every week to see, you know, to see what, what stock you have and, and such. And um, it, was, it was a good time. That's great. Now, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in a little town called Tip City, Ohio. So it's over north of Dayton, Ohio. Your Dayton. Okay, very nice. And were many people in your family uh, involved in, in law? Um, no one in my family is involved in law, actually, or doing legal type work in my immediate family. So it's interesting. Okay. Um, so, okay, so then once you, you, you uh, ended up going to Ohio State, and uh, majoring in Russian. So did you come into, into college planning on uh, majoring in Russian? I didn't. I, um, I actually spent some time in high school. I also volunteered at, uh, at a hospital near my hometown. And I thought I wanted to work in sort of a medical profession. 
So I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't have the drive to go to medical school, but I liked that sort of helping profession. And I came into Ohio State actually wanting to be a biology major and to study, um, just follow that path to see where it would take me, where I'd work in a hospital. I didn't want to be a nurse even. I liked hospital administration. I liked, um, I thought I liked the lab, like working in a lab, which turned out to be a completely wrong path for me. But, um, but that's, that's what, where I started at Ohio State. And then I, um, like many majors that start, at, you end up changing your mind after you take more courses and meet more instructors and getting a C on a math test. And then you, um, you find a different path. And that's what happened to me. Very good. So explain that a little bit, uh, how you ended up transitioning. So when you started at Ohio State, you had to take um, a foreign language. And I told you I had always been interested in Russian. And so I picked that as my foreign language. And then it just, you just keep adding classes as your interest increased. So I started with Russian. I took um, all of the language classes. I took um, the literature classes. I took linguistics classes. And actually my last year at Ohio State, I took um, essentially the first year of the graduate program. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And then my junior year, I lived, um, I did a study abroad. So I went to Moscow for about four months. I did a semester, semester abroad and really worked on my language then when I was there. Wow. So when you went to Russia, did you have a lot of Russian background, you know, uh, speaking already or, or um, how was that transition living, in, uh, actually living in Russia? It was a little bit hard because they, um, it was still not super duper open for tourists. So there were tourists and Americans there, but it wasn't as open as it is today. And um, there wasn't a lot of, you know, signs in English, for example, everything was in Russian. And I had only had two years of the language and it's a challenging language. So I really progressed a lot during the time I was there trying to learn how to communicate with people. So I, I think it was good to go then, but I probably would recommend going after maybe three years where you have more proficiency in the language and can really dive in a bit more than I could after two years. So what about culturally? It, it maybe here it might be important to say when, when you were there, right? It was Really, uh, immediately after the the fall of um, of the Soviet Union, so I would imagine it was an interesting time uh, culturally there. It was. I was there for my semester, but I was there in 1995, and so that's when there was a lot of um, just sort of growth and resurgence in lots of different parts of the city. But when you study and you live with a family, it's you think a lot more about. Um, just how similar the children are and the teenagers are to the things that I liked to do. So I told you I worked in the mall and hung out at the mall. And in my host family, my um, host sister did the same thing in Russia. So even though you're, you think that your world's apart, the interests and things that we get into can be very similar. Um, and then just the, it started becoming you know, I was working, living with someone of the family and then her, she was going to school to study English. And so we worked, you know, I would help her with English and she would help me with Russian was sort of the exchange that we had when I was living there for that semester. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Um, anything else about, you know, the experience that stands out, any particular stories that uh, you remember? Uh, 
I mean, I think anytime you get an opportunity to study abroad and spend time in another culture, you're always going to have that, like some sort of memory that you just like really crystallizes it for you. And I definitely would recommend taking that opportunity, um, no matter what your path lies. You know, for me, it was really just being comfortable being alone in a big city. So I grew up in a pretty small town, but, you know, just the idea that I could go down to a metro stop and go halfway across one of the most populous cities in the world and just visit a museum and walk around was just very, it sounds silly to say that now because people do that now, but it was very empowering to me at the time. And I think that a lot of um, study abroad experiences probably have something simple like that, that really encapsulates the freedom and the sort of the, the risks you take when you, when you go learn abroad. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so you were, once you were done with that study abroad, did you immediately go uh, into graduate school after you graduated from Ohio State? Uh, after I graduated from Ohio State, I went to back to Russia for a year. So I worked in, um, I got a job in Vladimir, Russia, which is a little town outside of Moscow teaching English. So I um, taught English for a year. And then while I was there, I took I had a, a tutor was part of the arrangement. So I spent another year sort of practicing Russian and learning more conversational Russian while I was there. Wow, so you were in Russia two different times, one for the study abroad and then again after graduation. Yep, that's right. Okay, wow. So then, okay, great. So you spent a year after your graduation living in Russia teaching English. Was that I know, it's every parent's dream. Like, please <laughs> let my child go to another country and not make very much money. But um, they they really relished in the experience as well. But it it was um it was fun, it was, and I got to learn a lot and practice, not just practice my language, but I really think that time helped me be a better writer because you have to spend so much time learning about grammar and English and how you're communicating. So I think it has lots of strengths that you get from that type of experience. Right. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Um, so now moving into, so after that year, then once you came back to America, you started graduate school then? What did I do then? I worked, um, essentially I went, I worked for a year and then I went to graduate school, but the graduate school is probably more interesting <laughs> of the journey. Okay. So talk a little about that. You were in Cleveland, right? At Case Western? I did. So I, um, decided after spending so much time working with um, with Russians and living in Russia, I really wanted to be part of, um, I, I really wanted to go to school to be a social worker and be part of a community that was helping Russian emigres get resettled in America and sort of going through that, that journey. And I picked Case Western Reserve. They have a very large um, Russian emigre population in Cleveland. And I spent two years living in Cleveland Heights and going, you know, going to school and then when you go to social work school there, you always intern at different um, sort of social organizations across the city. And um, that was part of my experience too. Well, so, okay, great. Um, so were the, were the immigrants, was there, you know, much of a, I'm sure you were, that was probably your, one of the first introductions to law. There's a lot of legal uh, questions with, you know, immigrants. Um, did you work at all in, in, the, in the law field with them? I'm sorry that I really didn't. So a lot of their legal issues had sort of been 
figured out before they they would come to the different to get their social services. So to get um, for resettlement or to help with, you know, I did a lot of work with their children. So helping their children who have sort of one foot in America and the other foot still in Russia because their parents are speaking Russian at home, but their their friends are speaking English at school, and just helping them work through some of that sort of that that youth journey of um, coming from one country and then spending the rest of your life in another. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, I feel a lot of people that are in data privacy now started in something totally different. So I'm curious, you know, did any of those experiences in Russia or working with the um, Russian immigrants, did they, do you feel like, you know, that experience helps you uh, in your work today? I think it does. You know, and I, after I finished graduate school, I um, came back to Columbus and was sort of looking for a job and I was temping as, as people do when they can't find a job, at least they did like in the nineties, um, in the early two thousands. And that's how I found a job at nationwide insurance. And one of my um, bosses there was recently dubbed the chief privacy officer for nationwide insurance. And I was temping and then he had a position open up, which I applied for and I, and I, um, received the job. And I think when you have a lot of experiences where you're, where you're working with um, folks from different cultures, when you're working with different approaches to try to um, sort of bring people along for a common goal, I think those types of skills are really important in the privacy space. And um, we can talk about them a little bit more later, but, but I think this idea of building skills around leading groups, um, helping people to, to do something they might not inherently want to do is a, is a big part of a privacy officer's role. And I think that those skills that I gained during those experiences really helped kind of pave the way for the work that I do now. That's great. Um, so what would you say, so when you were at Nationwide, is that the first time you started thinking about privacy questions and a career in, uh, in data privacy? I, it, yes, because I was, I think my first job title was privacy analyst, like privacy analyst one. So I was actually the first um, or the second privacy role they hired at Nationwide right after Graham Leach Bliley had come, come around and they needed a team to help continue with the regulatory privacy work that that group was leading. So that's when, so when the, so, you know, when you're looking for a job, sometimes you just want one. And I actually really liked the team um, the work they were doing is interesting and creative, and um, I went I went for the job and I got it. And then I have always worked in privacy from that moment forward. Well, okay, great. So when when was this uh, that you started in Nationwide? I'd imagine this was in the very very early days of even uh, people thinking about privacy. Right. So it was like 2000, 2000 and two thousand and one. So it was right after. We were working to comply with some of the very early privacy regulations, and um, you know, I worked for Kirk Harris, who's the um, he's retired now, but the chief privacy officer at Nationwide, who had also spent time doing government relations. So a lot of the work that I got to do on that team was, you know, sort of reviewing and analyzing privacy regulations like Gramlage Bliley, like HIPAA, like the state, you know, insurance privacy laws. The, as they were being drafted and be part of different, um, you know, the, like the FPF and other cross-institutional organizations that give feedback on these regulations and laws. And so that was a pretty 
um, valuable part of my sort of growing up in the privacy profession was really to see, you know, to see the profession unfold. You know, I remember when we would go to privacy conferences um, and the IAPP, which is a large privacy association, you would go to a conference and there'd be a hundred people and you'd know everybody there. And you would, you know, at dinner, we would talk to the drafters of some of the HIPAA regulations and be giving feedback in the moment. And so I remember when it was this sort of nascent little organization and now it's, you know, colossal and has, you know, thousands and thousands of members from all over the world. And so just to see how our profession grow has been a really interesting part of my privacy professional journey as well. Well, yeah, that's great. You really got on uh, the ground floor. So um, I guess, are there any particular, you know, experiences you remember there or, or uh, projects or regulatory matters that you worked on that uh, really stood out to you? Yeah, I think so, because, you know, around the early 2000s, there was so many privacy regulations that were really promulgated in such a short period of time. I remember one of the, the big things that I spent a lot of time working on was the TCPA, um, which is a, a, you know, privacy law at the time had to do with making robocalls. But thinking about like how that law would come to really evolve across the last you know 15 years or 20 years in privacy has been interesting so what started out was you know don't make robocalls to people during dinner has really involved into how do you get consent when you're trying to use wireless when you're trying to contact people on their wireless device and um, thinking about how to evolve from I just want to comply with the base of the law to to where we are now which is the spirit of the law is getting permission from our from our people, from our constituents to call them. And I think that's just been a really intellectually interesting journey. The other thing that happened while I was there was just some of the risks I took. So, you know, one of the, the things that I would, I don't know if I have any advice, but just an observation is sometimes you can take risks in your profession that you don't know where they'll lead. And one small one was trying to set up a, um, a like a, a countrywide shredding program, which sounds silly, but there was a provision in some of the privacy laws that talked about appropriate destruction of paper. And just taking that leap to meet with just people from across our company and trying to figure out what does it mean to be shredding at scale was you know, a pretty remarkable project um, for me, because at that time I was probably like a privacy specialist. You know, I got promoted from an analyst to a specialist. So I was still pretty, pretty young privacy professional and so to drive a project at that scale across you know such a large organization was was pretty a pretty memorable experience um, so yeah yeah I so could go on I could go on forever about that place it was a pretty intelligible part of my career that's great uh so you talked a little bit about the IAPP and and um you know so I know you you, you took some of the certifications uh, right when they, they first came out. Is that correct? It, it is. I took, I was part of the inaugural um, CIPP test, testing process when it was a little bit easier than it is for you guys today. It was just, at least it was shorter. I'll give it, I'll say that. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, so after nationwide what did you uh you, you went to to safe auto insurance after that correct 
it was state auto insurance. Auto so um, <laughs> that's okay. So um, at at Nationwide, one of the things that started happening in, with my job is that privacy regulations sort of ebb and flow across time. So there'll be periods of time where there was a lot of regulatory activity, a lot of guidance coming out from regulators that would generate sort of a lot of, of work. And I, um, I'm not a lawyer, but I did report to the legal department. And a lot of my job was really working to implement governance processes for these regulations. As the privacy stuff got a little quiet, the security world really beefed up. And so I started pivoting at the latter half of my year, my time at Nationwide, doing a lot more with risk management and information security governance. So if you think about all of the data breach laws that were coming out from every state on notifying individuals, um, started this big surge in work around information security governance, which became a real interest of mine. Um, I didn't, I have to say as a privacy pro, I do not love the world of incident response. Um, to me, when the breach happens or the incident happens, it's sort of the failure of governance and it's not my, you know, some people get excited by that adrenaline rush of, of solving the incident. That was never my passion. I like sort of managing and preventing them, I guess I would say. So I did that at Nationwide for a long time. And then, um, you know, state auto insurance had, they were doing some, some interesting things. So they brought in a new leadership team that was figuring out how to, how to deliver an all digital sort of insurance experience. And so thinking about how to weave privacy into um, that digital experience was really tempting. And I also wanted to do more work on in the regulatory space. So how do you articulate a privacy program, a security program, a compliance program to a regulator? So they have comfort in the work that you're doing was a real interest of mine. And so going to state auto, I was able to sort of build on both of those things, which was which ended up being really fun. So they had a lot of really smart, fast, nimble teams trying to pull together how to get insurance into the hands of a policyholder really quickly. And um, it was lovely to figure out how to do that while adhering to all these privacy requirements. Well, wow. you know, so it was a, um, probably one of the very first uh, rollouts that really considered privacy right at the right at the onset. I don't know. I, I mean, at least because I was when I was there, it was because we were able to build in different you know, notices and consents throughout the process, which is so much easier to do when you're deploying something. And as every privacy pro knows, it's really hard to do once it's out, once the deployment is finished. So I think from that perspective, it, it made it fun because we could solve problems before, like we could solve issues and, and resolve things before the product was launched. And so that made it really exciting. That's great. Uh, so so after that, then uh, you came to Ohio State, your, your current role. Uh, so maybe talk a little bit about uh, what swayed you to, to come to Ohio State and uh, what kind of opportunities you know, you've had uh, at school. Sure, um, sort of like the favorite part of my journey, I guess. So, you know, I, I'm a, an alum of Ohio State. I've been, you know, working closely with their cybersecurity program for lots of, for a long time. You know, I had known Helen Patton, the um, information security and privacy sort of gang that hangs around Columbus, Ohio are very close knit. So we see each other at a lot of local conferences and lunch and learns. 
and just different events around the city. So it's, it's a small, close-knit group. And I had always admired the work of Helen and wanted to work with her. So I, when I saw the position get posted, I, um, I applied for it. I feel like in all transparency, I should say that I wasn't going to. I was a little bit nervous whether I had um, the right, what they were looking for, I guess. And it's probably the same as any other person who presses go on the application button. I actually wasn't going to apply. And then um, at the last minute, I decided to. And I submitted my application at like 11.45 p.m. when it was due at midnight <laughs> to apply for the job. And, um, and then I was selected to be one of three to be interviewed for the job. The interview process was pretty robust. So there was a committee and um, I had to give a presentation. And um, I guess all's well that ends well. So I was hired and I'm having just a complete blast, you know, working on building different parts of the Ohio State Privacy Program, pulling things together that have been in place for a long time, and um, just really shining the light on some of the good practices that are already here across the university. So before you joined Ohio State, when you got here, what kind of privacy considerations did Ohio State have before you started? They had uh, very robust privacy practices by regulation, I would say. So if you think about as a student, you have FERPA protects you. So they have a very robust um, you know, compliance governance program around FERPA. The same goes with health, their health information under HIPAA and um, student financial aid data for their Gramm-Leach-Bliley program, et cetera. So that stuff was all well, well in hand. The, the opportunity that I was able to jump into was really thinking more about how do you, how do you govern you know, the privacy expectations of, of the new world? So students now come to Ohio State and they expect more than just you know, FERPA compliance. They are interested in and want to know that we're thinking about how do we govern their personal information sort of above, above the FERPA requirements. And so how do you pull that all together? Uh, can you go in a little more detail on that? What kinds of you know, things are, uh, are you working on on that front? Well, you know, one of the first things I wanted to do is be more transparent about how we were using digital information that we collect on students, faculty, and staff. And so the first thing I did was pull together, well, first I spent a lot of time having um, lots of coffees and just getting to know you know, this great community and all of the people that are here that contribute to privacy information, security and compliance. And so that takes a while to get a little bit of bearing at such a large institution. And from, from there, I formed um, a working group underneath our university Senate to try to have a, a, a forum for generating a new web privacy statement. And I think um, if a, the privacy pros are listening, they might say, that's a compliance function. Just go write a web privacy statement. It's not that hard. Um, for me, it really was an opportunity to hear from students, to hear from faculty members, to hear from staff about how they think Ohio State should use their data and how do we explain it in a way that's easy. And so the creation of that document took um, many, many months to put together and had many um, different, you know, sort of parts of the organization giving input into it. And I'm just really proud of the output that we came up with. Um, I think it's simple to read, it's transparent. It's um, easy to understand. I think not just to read it, but to understand what we're talking about. And it really sort of serves as a fulcrum for all of the other things that we'll be doing in the privacy program. Um, 
part of that work included the creation of a privacy governance council, which also has um, students, faculty and staff members on it. And the privacy governance council, uh, you know, sort of meets to, to set the direction for how the privacy program will unfold. So I'm just really proud of how the community has embraced privacy with such um, enthusiasm and, and, um, and is excited to see what we're, we're putting out, what we're publishing. You know, I think something that's of interest to uh, some, some of my listeners is just how far reaching privacy is. Um, and I think Ohio State's probably a great example of that. Is there any particular uh, instances where, you know, privacy's played a role um, in just daily life at Ohio State that might seem a little bit surprising to uh, an outsider? I think so. I think there's two things that sort of come to mind. So, you know, different, higher ed is different than the private sector. So um, in higher ed, the Big Ten, we get together and, and sort of share ideas and best practices in our academic and staff culture. So we compete on the football field, but we collaborate in privacy. So I co-chair the Big Ten, the Big Ten Privacy Officer Group with Holly Swires from Penn State. And so just to bring that that force of what are you guys doing to, you know, comply with some of these regulations is really powerful. So that's a, and then we have also published, um, you know, documentation on what should we do for contact tracing across our, across the Big Ten. So I think it's a really interesting way to bring together all of the ideas, but then also deliver some real benefits to all of our um, university constituents. So there's one, that's a big one. The other, the other thing I think it's just sort of the, um, I don't know, it's, it's almost like the, I guess the way I'm, I'm thinking about when, when we got together for pandemic response. So, you know, Noah, you're a student, you've lived through how the university has really had to um, make some changes to its practices to, to be ready to have students on campus despite a pandemic. And I think a lot of the information we needed to collect from students you know, testing, health symptoms, having privacy at the table, having me sit and help the teams think about privacy from the beginning was a really important part of that journey. I think, um, you know, it gives, hopefully students will feel comfort in that their data is governed, you know, that the privacy practices are maintained, but then we're also needing to collect that information to help with, you know, thinking about the, a future pandemic and helping to keep our students safe. And, um, I think that's a real a testament to how you can be involved in this community and really make an impact on, on the central Ohio community. We have such a huge footprint here. We have such a large population in Columbus that keeping our community healthy and safe makes a big impact on you know, our surrounding schools. Excellent. Um, so Holly, what, what kind of things are you, know, you excited about uh, in the future? Like at work? We, uh, yeah, work-related. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess I would say, uh, right, work-related or, you know, where do you see yourself um, work-wise, you know, in, in the future? There's a lot of exciting things, and I wish I had more, um, more, more time to contribute to all the things that are out there. In the short term, one of the, the things that I'm working on is how to um, provide some governance around analytics, especially student analytics. So I think every um, industry in America is talking about analytics and data scientists and thinking about 
you know, how they can use the data they have in their systems for a particular purpose. I think when it comes, if you're a privacy officer working in the private sector, so you're working for a hospital or an insurance company, you know, the, the regulatory schema is a little bit clear, it's fairly clear. And you're usually working with customers that are sort of paying customers. And so it's easier to build permissions and consent into that practice. Uh, I think in higher ed, everything is just um, much more decentralized. So thinking about how to govern the data that we have on our students in a holistic way is going to be a huge um, opportunity to tackle over the next 12 months. And I think thinking about the, right now the data sits. And so how do we sort of unleash the potential of that data, but doing it in a respectful, governed, ethical way while we're thinking about privacy is going to be part of you know, the next couple of months of work um, for me. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so I think, you know, you never uh, went to law school. So for people listening that are maybe thinking about going to law school, not thinking about it, um, how would, you know, it seemed like it, uh, it wasn't necessary for your career. So if you could just weigh in on that in today's day and age, is it necessary? Or um, have you felt like, you know, you can, you can have a very successful career without it? I think it depends um, what you want to do with your with the work that you do. I think a lot of people find their way to privacy from the legal profession just because of, you know, classes they take or experiences they have that you are just afforded because you're going to a law school. I think it, when what I see in lawyers that graduate, you end up working for a legal team and and you're generally giving legal advice, which is a little bit different kind of work than the work that I do. So I like actually operationalizing that work. So in other words, the lawyers that I work with will say, um, hey, Holly, you should, a best practice would be to get consent for A, or you should make sure your disclosure has the appropriate contract language for B. And my job is really to, to create, develop and implement that advice. And for me, that's, that's where the fun sits. And you don't always need to be a lawyer to do that. Um, I know privacy officers are typically lawyers, but it hasn't been a need for the, my career path. Across the Big Ten in higher ed, it's less common to see lawyers in privacy roles. As, a, as an observation, I haven't taken a survey about it, but I, I feel like when we get together, we're more talking about how to, how to do privacy, not um, the legal advice of, of what needs to be done. And so I think that might be a, a, different, a different perspective for for your listeners. That's great. Um, so my last question here is, you know, for listeners that are thinking, uh, how can I become the next Holly Drake? What kind of advice or experiences um, or personality traits, you know, would you say that uh, really propelled you to get to where you are? You know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately are sort of my work values and what, what do I value at work and what do I bring at work? And for me, obvious things like collaboration have really been important for me in thinking about how you, how you get experience um, working with, you, with people from across your organization, especially to drive the problem, like the solution to a problem. So, so there could be a perceived problem that we can't do this, we cannot text students, right? And so to be bold, and so I'd say be bold and be, um, and find your collaborators to solve that, that op, you know, it's really an opportunity. 
So if the if your organization is holding back on something because of privacy or because of a perceived risk, figuring out how to govern it and solve it, you know, in our case, get consent, um, can it really be a powerful story to tell for your resume, but also make your, you know, make your job more valuable and more fun. It's not just, you know, sometimes when you work in a legal team, you'll, you may feel, I felt you're sort of hitting um, tennis balls of advice, like do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. But what I get to do is catch the tennis ball and implement it. And I need to, in order to do that, I need to be able to be highly collaborative across this large organization and then take bold risks. Um, you'll be been in, in, in conversations I've been at, you know, I'll, I'll be in a meeting and get an inspiration that says, I think we should just do this, let's do it and form a working group and just keep pushing forward until you get it done. And I think that um, sort of bold action can, can really make the difference in your career. Excellent. Thank you so much, Holly. And uh, we've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.